This episode of Truth's Table is brought to you by our NAACP Image Award-nominated book, Truth's Table, Black Women's Musings on Life, Love, and Liberation. Get it where all books are sold. Sisters, how y'all feel? Brothers, y'all all right? If this is your first time at Truth's Table, welcome to the table. And if you've been sitting at the table with us all these years, we are so grateful that you have been listening to us through these years, and we are inviting you to partner with us and support our work at patreon.com slash truthstable. Now pull up a chair and have a seat at the table with us. Hey y'all, welcome to Truth's Table. It was the culture for grace and truth. I'm McKemini. And we are coming to the end of the season, y'all. Uh, but as we are coming to our close, I am excited to share with you all a special Truth's Table classroom episode. Uh, and this episode is a special one because earlier this year, uh, well, I guess the summer, I uh, participated on a panel at the Witnesses Joy and Justice Conference uh, back in June of 2023. And I was on the panel alongside uh, Mark Antoine, uh, who is a Haitian uh, American. Uh, born in Haiti, though, uh, and immigrated uh, here to the U.S. And uh, me being second gen uh, Nigerian American, some sociologists say first gen, but you know, American born um, to Nigerian parents, uh, we were on the panel discussing uh, really the changing demographics of the Black community, Black immigrants, um, and Pan Africanism, and uh, None other than Tyler Burns moderated our conversation. So I hope you enjoyed this Truth Table classroom about Pan-Africanism and the African diaspora. Uh, so you can get just uh, hopefully um, some more information and knowledge and understanding of uh, what Pan-Africanism Pan is and how we are connected to one another. So I hope that it's uh, insightful, helpful, and encouraging to you. Enjoy this episode. So I have two incredible people who I've had the privilege to know, um, one longer than the other, but I've been blessed and inspired by each of them. And to my left is none other, other than Ikemeni Uwan. Um, she is one half of Truth's Table, the podcast, one half of Truth's Table, the award-nominated, the NAACP Image Award-nominated book. Um, she is a public theologian. She is a gift. And I have the privilege of calling Akemini my big sister, my friend. Um, so we honor you. Can we give it up for Akemini? Did I do it right? Is there anything else you want to add? You want to do anything else you want to add? And then to my left um, and to my right, I want you to introduce yourself because you're new to this stage. So I want, you to, I want you to give the full introduction of who you are. But this brother Mark has blessed me and he is such a... Um, such a blessing, I, I believe, to the body of Christ and to this conversation. So introduce yourself, Mark. Good afternoon, everybody. How y'all doing? It's great to be here. It's an honor, it's a privilege. I want to thank my brother, Reverend Burns, for this blessing um, to be here. Um, my name is Mark Antoine. I'm Haitian-American. I was born in Haiti. Um, I grew up in the States. You got some Haitians here? All right, now y'all got to be careful now. It's na boule. New or form. Now, if I, start, if I start speaking in Creole, stop me. But um, I grew up in Philadelphia, 
I was living in Haiti for the past seven years, um, and we recently just got back to the States, so we're trying to get our American footing back. Um, but um, I work as a vice president for Tier Fund USA for international programs. Um, I'm an associate pastor at the Kingdom Church in Orlando, um, and really, really blessed and honored to be here. Looking forward to joining the stage with my sister um, and my brother, so thank you. And I want to take this time to acknowledge Tier Fund. Uh, they're one of the sponsors of our conference. And as Mark was mentioning, he's the vice president of international programs there. So it, we just thank you, Tier Fund, for uh, helping us to put this conference on. So can we give it up for Tier Fund for sponsoring? We wanted to have this conversation, and we wanted to make it a conversation because justice in the black community is bigger than the United States of America. Very easy for us to think and believe that it just deals with police brutality or just deals with a school system that might be unjust or inequitable. It, it's easy for us to think about our own neighborhood and not realize we're part of a broader community. And one of the things that we changed when we changed from the Reformed African American Network to The Witness is we wanted to open it up to a global view of things. And we're still working on what that means, still working on how we do that. Uh, but I felt like this conversation was crucial to challenge us, those of us who are here in the States, to think broader and bigger than simply what is happening in our own shores. And there's so much that we can talk about that's happening in the States. But let's think a little bit broader. And, and there was no better person to talk to now with having presented multiple times at the United Nations at this point than Ikemeni, multiple times. And uh, just was recently, I believe last week at Capitol Hill. Um, and and you're, you're going all over the place, but I want us to talk specifically about the United Nations aspect. And you've, you've specifically talked about reparations for the diaspora. Reparations now, by the way, not later, now. Um, y'all didn't, didn't clap on that. Y'all just like, oh, well, you know. You're yeah. unsure? You're unsure? You're not convinced <laughs> that we need reparations? <laughs> Tell us about that, your work there, and how you've been received talking about reparations for our people. Yeah, so, uh, well, first of all, thank you for the opportunity to expand the conversation, to talk about the diaspora um, and what it means to be Africans in America, which is the language um, that Pan-Africanists used to talk about all of us, okay? Um, and uh, yeah, so how I was received, and so I'm a charter member of the International Civil Society Working Group um, at the UN's Permanent Forum for People of African Descent. Um, the, the long and short of that conversation or of that work is that this has been years upon years upon years of advocacy on the work of um, activists that have been working to get a permanent forum on people of African descent for many, 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 many years. There's one for indigenous people, there's one for women, there's one for a lot of other people groups, but there was not one um, for African descendant people. Go figure, I wonder why, what's, what's that about? Um, and so, uh, and this came uh, to be after the lynching of George Floyd and, um, and this was established in August of 2021. And so I've been a part of that working group since then, um, working um, across the globe with other 
um, people of African descent on the issues and the pain points for people of African descent around the globe, including the U.S., of course, um, primarily working on reparations, first and foremost, of course, economic justice, um, health care, you know, um, um, justice as well, and a, a host of other issues. Um, but my research area is reparations. Uh, and actually, my, my statements and my advocacy has been well-received. Um, there in that context within the UN um, and by God's grace the statements that I've made when I went to Geneva, Switzerland um, in December 2022 I was able to make a, a statement about reparations there making a, a connection um, between my own people, the Abibo people and the transatlantic slave trade because the African voice is often missing from the reparations conversation um, and so I was able to make that statement and that actually was put into the historical record of the UN's uh, inaugural convening of the permanent session for people of African descent. So, um, and the second one was also uh, accepted into the historical record as well. So, I, I try to work on two fronts. So, not only the federal le legislation here, HR 40, which needs to pass, but Cory Bush has also put forward um, a reparations legislation that I was able to um, be a signatory on. So, you sign that um, for that to go forward. And so, we got to work federally and globally. Um, on reparations, and reparations is happening. <laughs> so it's it's happening right here in he Evanston, Illinois. So it's not it's not as if something as future. It's happening now and is going to continue to happen. And so I pray that the federal and the global aspect happens in our lifetime. Um, but if you are committed to the work of justice, you're not doing, or you ought not be, <laughs> working and advocating for justice issues just so that you can see it. Hopefully you're doing it for your posterity and for the generation to come uh, because you may not see it. You might not get to the mountaintop and that's all right. You know what I mean? Because I know I got a crown awaiting me in heaven. So it really don't make no difference to me anyhow, but it is still reparations now. Mm -hmm. Wow. <laughs> I love how she just slid the theology in there. Just like, um, I'm a rapper. I'm a rapper. <laughs> right. No, that's good. I'm not. I really want to be a rapper. She got album credits. <laughs> Do I have album credits? A question for you on that. Could you explain, when you talk about um, some bills put, being put forward, um, when you say reparations, what exactly does that entail? Yeah. And, and, and yeah, a quick summary of what is it? Tangibly. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I'm glad you asked. So, um, in my, when I was at the uh, UN a couple of weeks ago, uh, well, shoot, time's flying, so let me call it next month, because time is going. <laughs> uh, uh, but uh, I was talking about, you know, when we're talking about reparations, I literally do address this. We're not talking about just a check. That is the minimum. We're not talking about less than that. Okay, because the system of capitalism was built on the backs of our ancestors, period. So we need a check to be ran to us. But it's a check plus, you know, uh, um, repatriation if, if people want to repatriate. It's a check plus reunification. It's a check plus mental health services. It's a check plus land. It's a check plus, you know what I mean, statues. It's a, it's a check plus, plus, it's plus, 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 because the harms, you know, um, are unfortunately endless. And so, um, so it's, it's much more comprehensive than just a check, but it ain't less than that. Yeah, that's, that deserves, yeah. Mm -hmm. I wanna come back to this, but Mark, Mark, you're into now reintroducing yourself and your family, getting your footing into the US context. Is, what does it feel like to step back into 
the U.S. context. Uh, is there is there a bit of disequilibrium that happens, or you know, is it much different? Like, what does it feel like now in your body? Yeah, that's that's a great question. I think one of the one of the great things about moving back to Haiti after growing up in the states was that I was able to go to a place where my people came from and able to live in that place, able to understand the culture of my parents, able to understand why they did certain things, why they said certain things, things that you don't get growing up in America, you know, being, you know, with assimilation, you become American. And so when my parents would say certain things to me, I'm like, but mom and dad, that's not how people, that's not how things are done here. Going back to Haiti and living in that place, I understood my parents much better. And for me, that was probably the greatest gift, being able to understand why and how my parents are wired the way they are. Coming back here, one of the challenges was I, being in a place where it was majority my people um, and then coming back to a place where then I become the minority again. But also a challenge was even where my people were the majority, the minority still controlled. So even in Haiti, those with the power we're not our people. That's right. And so the justice thing that we're dealing with here is international. It's not just here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so coming back here, um, you know, it was a challenge because I was like, man, I get, I, get, I get to raise my kids in my country. I get to raise my kids in this place, get to connect with my people, speak the language, all of that. Um, and then because of so many issues, being unable to continue that, it, it, it hurt quite a bit. But I do appreciate being in America because of um, the opportunities that are allowed here. And as diaspora, we tend to talk bad about America a lot. But the fact of the matter is that there are opportunities that are allowed here that are not allowed elsewhere. And what we can do with those opportunities is use them to transform where we come from. And so I saw how my opportunity as being an American national helped me to influence things back home in Haiti. Um, and so being back here, um, it, it, it is a blessing, sometimes a curse, um, but God is, is sovereign and uh, still blessed. How has it been reintroducing yourself into American church culture? So can you talk about how different American church is than your, where you come from? One of the sad things is that there's not much of a difference, and that's because of colonization. Um, and of course, you know, the proliferation of American gospel. So if you go to many churches in Haiti and around the world, you hear a lot of the songs are just translated American songs. Um, you go walk into a church, and it looks like a typical, you know, a lot of them look like typical American churches. But when you talk to the older generations, so my grandfather and, you know, elders, um, you'll begin to get much more of a distinct Haitian cultural theology from them, um, which was refreshing. Um, Coming back here and understanding that the culture and how it influences the American theology um, that is often from people who have held our families down, um, it's, it's, it's hard to again, come back into that space where you have to grapple with that tension. Um, Whereas I was in a place where that tension wasn't there because it was all Haitian. Um, And there was that understanding of shared identity, shared history, shared culture, shared struggle. 
Um, and so coming back into this space, again, the blessing is that we can help get to this place to bridge the gap. Um, the curse is that we still have a lot of gaps to be bridged. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's been twofold in, in that sense. So, uh, Kimini, I want you to talk about the dangers of us limiting justice to an American context, to the U.S. context. Mm -hmm. uh, because I think for, for many of us, it may be overwhelming just to think about the justice issues in our neighborhood, just to think about the justice issues in schools, just to think about the justice issues that seem to sprout up everywhere. Mm -hmm. and, and we're saying expand it. And some would say that's too much, too soon. I can't do it. I can't, I can't comprehend it. But why is it important for us to have a broader perspective of what it means for justice and flourishing to be for our people? Yeah, so um, I love that question because I, I do think that uh, whether, you know, whether we're ready or not, <laughs> the, the black population here in the U.S. has changed and is changing, actually. So um, just looking at the data from like Pew Research, 10%, well, 10%, I think black folks would make up 12% of the U.S. population. Um, and of that, that figure, I think it's about 12. Um, I think they said about 10% of the black population now, you know, within that, that big pie, 10% of that population is now black immigrants, right? And so there's a significant, you know, um, change and shift in the actual black population. So the growth of the population is actually coming from black immigrants immigrating here. The the biggest country, the, most of the countries um, that make up the population are Jamaicans, Haitians, and then Nigerians. So Nigerians ain't taking over everything all the time. Okay, I'm, I'm speaking as a Nigerian, <laughs> second gen. But I was like, oh, I was like the Jamaicans and Haitians didn't beat us. All right, y'all, go ahead, go forth. So, <laughs> but um, you know, so I think in some ways we're getting some of that diversity. You know, I think we're, we're going to have to embrace the diversity within blackness. You know, we, have to, we often think about it as a monolith, but I think if we are so concentrated on just the U.S. context, and I get it because the oppression is thick and it is overwhelming and it is exhausting, you know, in the U.S. But if we do not expand um, our, uh, our liberative imaginations to think um, with a pan-Africanist mindset to be making sure that we're thinking about our African brothers and sisters and we're thinking about our Caribbean brothers and sisters and we're thinking about our African descendant uh, uh, brothers and sisters all over the globe, in Turkey, in Iran, in Palestine. Come on now, we're everywhere. You know, we are in India. We are everywhere, literally. And so if we don't think about that, we can be subject um, uh, uh, to falling for, to uh, America first mentality. <laughs> that's not just exclusive to white people and white evangelicals. If we don't watch it, we can really begin to get this, um, um, yeah, this, this very, this, this, um, very privileged, you know, posture, you know, um, and because we got the blue passport, <laughs> you know, cause there is a privilege that does come along with that. Right. And not, not all of us got it. I'm not trying to, you know, you know, there's a barrier to even getting that passport. Um, but I think that sometimes we can ha operate an America first mentality if we do not broaden the scope of our understanding um, of our own connectivity, which is why Pan-Africanism is actually really important. And so when I, I lifted up the, con the conflicts that were happening in Ethiopia and Tigray, I lifted up because these are our people. And why don't we care about what's happening in East Africa 
And okay, there's a very fluid situation happening right now in Russia with a potential civil war or coup that's happening right now. We don't know things are shifting by the moment there. But okay, what about what's been happening in Sudan? No, y'all know about that? Like, you know, do we care about that? And why don't we care about Africans, African lives? What about what's happening in Haiti and has been happening in Haiti and how Haiti, not only pray for Haiti, but pay Haiti, which is something we have been working on for a long time. We owe Haiti everything. If it's not for Haiti, where will we be? Oh, no, 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 no. So we have got to have a much more broad um, 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 a lens, you know, on who we are as a people. And I understand this disconnection. It makes you feel very, um, it just feels like there's a chasm that we can never, never um, uh, um, close the gap on. And that was by design. But we really, truly, in the words of Gwendolyn Brooks, we are each other's magnitude and bond. And if we do not understand that, and if we don't take that in, and if we don't think in biblical ways about this Pan-African isn't that we're called to, if you think about John 17, the high priestly prayer, Jesus praying for his disciples in that unity. Analogically, that is the, that is the implication and application for us as a people. Make them one as I am one. We are one. And within that oneness, it, that's not to flatten us. You know, we, have, we all have different social locations. All three of us have different social locations here. I am second gen. Nigerian-American. Mark, you were born in Haiti, right? Okay, so he's, he's foreign, technically, whether we classify as foreign-born, and Tyler is African-American, but technically, we all African-American. You know, sorry, if you, think about, you know, so there, we have complex identities, and so that's not to flatten it, but there's unity within diversity, you know, and so if we don't understand our collective identity and the universe and the diversity within that, within that in our various social locations, then we will continue to be divided, scattered, and battered. Yeah. Wow. Yes. Divided, scattered, and battered. It's, it's so fascinating that you're talking about this as one, because Mark, one of the things I, I've, I've learned is much of our conversation about brothers and sisters in other lands is let's learn about them. And I, I think learning about them needs to probably shift to learning from them. Well, And it's hard for us to see that because again, there's this America first mentality and and we're, we're doing it better than anyone else. And, you know, we're, we're achieving more than everyone else. But, but actually, our, our brothers and sisters, our family, our siblings in other lands have so much to teach us about how to stand for justice. Can you talk a, a little bit about what we need to hear in terms of learning from other places, learning from Haiti, learning from uh, the, the, the people on the, the motherland, learning from those of, of, of us who are not here in the States? Yeah, no, I think that's, that's amazing. I, it's, it's amazing that this conference isn't here in Chicago. Chicago was founded by a Haitian man. Absolutely, it was. That's right. Uh, Jean-Baptiste Pointe Sable was a Haitian man, founded Chicago. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you say learn from others, it's so amazing. Haiti became independent in 1804. We declared our independence. During that time, for generations before that, we defeated the French, the Spanish, and the English. Taking all three. Now, these these were not people with military experience. These were people from Africa, West Africa, 
who were made slaves right. and decided to That's fight right. back. Mm-hmm. This is justice. That's right. Right? So we call, it, we call in this the witness and rise up. The rising up on this hemisphere come on, come on. was started in Haiti. That's right. Um, And so when you talk about that, and then you talk about during the late 1700s to the 1800s, those Haitians who were fleeing Haiti during that time came here, and the Americans were fearful because he said, these group of, I don't know what they are, are they French black people, are they Africans, are they Caribbeans? But they're influencing our slaves because the Haitians were coming here, and they were telling the black slaves that you don't have to stand for this. That's right. So if you've ever heard of Plessy versus Ferguson, anybody heard oh, about yeah. that? Separate but equal? Plessy versus Ferguson in Louisiana was a group of Haitian Americans who decided to test the system for equal rights of black people. Mm-hmm. Plessy was a light-skinned Haitian. Mm-hmm. Well, okay. And he decided, okay. along with his friends, that we're going to test, we're going to ride the, the trains... And we're going to ride the buses, and we're going to test the system. And they tested it on three occasions. The first two went well. The last one was against Ferguson, the judge, where they came out with the separate but equal. But this was an expressive test of the system by a group of Haitian diaspora. This is what you're talking about, learning from them. These are people who grew up in Haiti or had their parents in Haiti and understood how to mobilize and advocate for justice. And then they came to this foreign land to learn that the land of the free was not free. And they decided to stand up against it. And so you have, again and again, stories of diaspora teaching us, but you never heard, and I never heard, that Plessy was was from a group of Haitian diaspora. It's not in your textbooks. There was a group called Comité de Citoyens, which is Committee of Citizens. And that was a group in Louisiana of Haitian lawyers. Haitian lawyers. Now, this is not in 2023. I'm talking about the late 1700s and 1800s. Haitian lawyers. Black lawyers who said, we're going to do this to test the system in America. And so this is what you're talking about, learning from. And it's about knowing, knowing our history. Y'all are, y'all are blessing me. Is this blessing anybody else? This is blessing me. Our NAACP Image Award-nominated book, Truth's Table, Black Women's Musings on Life, Love, and Liberation, is making waves and shifting culture. I closed this book feeling like I had just partaken in a multi-course meal filled with grace and the courage to carry on. And I believe you'll finish this book feeling the same way. Morgan Harper Nichols, artist and poet. Buy Truth's Table, Black Women's Musings on Life, Love, and Liberation at our website or wherever books are sold. I want to ask this question of both of you. The divide between black churches here and black churches elsewhere. Can you talk a little bit about the need to bridge conversational gaps resource gaps, theological gaps, representational gaps. Can you talk about the need to bridge in conversation? Because I can, I can already hear and feel wheels turning in people's heads. What do I do with this? But before we get there, can you talk about the gaps that exist and why we need to be intentional as those here in the States of making sure we bridge some of those? 
whoever wants to hop in on this. Um, when I think about the gap, I mean, again, the, the gaps between the, 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 um, the, the black churches, you know, uh, continental African churches, you know, um, and churches in the Caribbean and even the ones here. Um, and that gap is by design, right? I, I'm thinking about, I've been reading about um, Mary, Mary uh, McLeod Bethune, the Pan-Africanist, you know, to talk about how she wanted to be a missionary because she is um, the descendant of the Guinea people, actually, is what she discovered, you know, through her own lineage. Um, And she wanted to be a missionary so that she can go back to Africa, you know, um, to not only just reclaim her heritage, but she really wanted to spread the gospel over there. Um, But she was actually denied uh, um, admission. And so she, she studied at a, at a seminary. I can't remember the name of the seminary at the moment. She also studied at Moody Bible Institute. Um, and then, uh, she went on to apply for this mission board. I, I believe it was a Presbyterian mission board, uh, that actually rejected her, her application. And many black missionaries wanted to go back, right. Um, um, after emancipation to be, you know, go back and just kind of reclaim, uh, repatriate and do all, you know, do all types of, at least in this case, um, biblical, you know, work out there um, and re- reconnect with their roots, but many of them were rejected. Um, and so I think part of that gap is because of, you know, um, that, that racism, right? And they didn't want to have them go back and uh, radicalize the Africans and let them know, you don't have to be under colonial rule. <laughs> they didn't want them to upset the social order there on, uh, on the continent too, right? So some of that is just design baked in, you know, um, from uh, times past, right? Uh, And then I think that when we, and then when you come here, you have to think about the fact that um, because white supremacy is a global um, project, you got to deal with the internalization of that white supremacy and how that maps on to Africans and how it maps on to Caribbean people and how it maps on to African-Americans. And it it, it, it keeps us, you know, um, or it attempts to keep us, you know, apart and divided. I have always submitted, though, that the black church is much more diverse than people realize. Uh, and that because of these <laughs> racial caste systems that we have, we're not able to appreciate the diversity that's within the black church. But within the black church, at least particularly my own black church, my black church is actually a third African-American. It is a third Caribbean and it is a third African. So you can hear, and it, and it is a black church. <laughs> My pastor is African-American. And so you can hear any number of, of accents on a given day. I can hear, on a given Sunday, I can hear five different accents in one service. Uh, everybody's black. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And, but we're all located in different places, right, within, within this whole beautiful African diaspora. You know, and so I think that, uh, I think we have to open our eyes to who's there, who's in the room, what are our social locations? How can we learn from one another? It's already in the room. You know, whatever you need. Like John, the Jason Nelson song, it's in the room. You know what I mean? Whatever you need, it's in the room. It is within us, you know. Um, and so, so I think, I think that's, in, that's already in there. We just have to um, take hold of that and lay hold of that. And I think that at least the black churches I've attended have actually done a pretty good job of doing that. So I have not felt that, um, I haven't felt diaspora wars. Let me just say it that way with our diaspora war tensions within my own black church context. And I, I thank God for that. But that, I don't know, Mark, maybe you have a different story, but I'd love to hear what you have to say about that. No, I, I think that's, that, that's great. I think there's a, there's a gap, a theological gap that I think 
um, is important. Um, the, the churches in many of our diaspora countries, our immigrant countries, um, have not been able to progress theologically as much as the black church here for a number of reasons. One, because a lot of the missionaries, evangelical missionaries, are still going back. And with the evangelical missionaries going back, and there's nothing particularly against evangelicals, but evangelicals going back, they're also going back with a specific theology. And so there's a reinforcing of colonial theology, whereas the black church here has been able to wrestle with and understand and have authors, many of who you know, we have in the room, people who are writing and understanding and submitting other theological stances, which is happening in some places um, globally, but not as much as the black church here. So I think this is one of the places where the black church here in America can also provide learning and support elsewhere. One of those theological, um, one of the theological gaps is, um, is linked to what we would call integral mission. Integral mission is um, was something that is, we see biblically, but it was coined by Latin American theologians and is basically explaining um, that the gospel is not just about waiting to die to inherit heaven, but it's about advancing the kingdom now. And it's about how, it's not just about evangelism, but it's both the declaration and the demonstration of the gospel. Um, and, and this was, uh, this is the impetus behind MLK and his move, understanding that, yes, it's important to, you know, preach to people, but it's also important to know how people live and the justice that we should have now. Um, and so, like, if you take a look through, even if you take a look through the Gospel of Luke, in chapter 5 of, of, of Luke, um, the author tells us that the people are coming to Jesus for two reasons, to hear and to be healed. In chapter 6, this is repeated. People are coming to Jesus for two reasons, to hear and to be healed. In chapter 7, John the Baptist sends his disciples to Jesus. He said, are you the real Messiah or should we look for another? And Jesus tells John's disciples, go back and tell them what you have seen and what you have heard. In chapter 8, there's a woman with the issue of blood. She touches the word of God, which is on the tassels, and is immediately healed. In chapter 9... Jesus sends the 12 and he tells them to go preach the gospel and heal the sick. In chapter 10, he sends the 70. You better go through this whole book. He says, in chapter 10, says the 70, he says the same thing. Preach the gospel and heal the sick. The gospel was to be declared and to be demonstrated. And what has happened is, especially with colonial theology, we've removed, we've separated the two with this sacred, secular kind of divide. But what we learn from scripture is that the demonstration is inextricably linked to the declaration. Right, right, right. Amen. Amen. I love this because I, I, I also love, and this is why we exist, mm. because it is very easy to get into grading your church experience and grading your theological experience based upon the most popular white voices. And down to even worship. Because as you you, you mentioned, worship is exported out. Mm -hmm. So now they have unique songs that they could sing, but they're singing all the songs we sing. 
and we didn't write the songs we sing. And so it's just, it's so fascinating to me how these layers reinforce divides and reinforce hierarchy. And we preach justice, but we sing colonial songs. Right? So we preach justice and we sing choruses that aren't written by our people. And it's, and even what we would consider, you know, even in some cases gospel or, or what have you, still with the overtones of theological you know, restriction and bondage. And so it, it, I love this because it's showing us there is more to this gospel. And many of us have, are, are coming into that. And as we're breaking into this idea of declaration and demonstration, which I'm going to steal, that's going to be in a sermon on Sunday. But declaration and demonstration. I love alliteration, y'all. I love this. My brother. So as we as we step into that declaration and demonstration, our minds are expanding, and our hearts are now. And there's there's almost this tension of what have I missed out on? Because people only taught me how to declare. And they only said it was worth declaring, only worth declaring, only worth declaring. What have I missed out on? How do you deal with the missing out, though? Because even in this conversation, I'm seeing gaps. Even in this conversation, we're missing out on family. We're missing out on oneness. Mm -hmm. We're missing out on our our neighbors. We're missing out on a a Pan-African view, Mm -hmm. Pan-Africanist view of of the world. Mm -hmm. How do we deal with the missing out? Yeah, I I I think it's things like like these and hearing examples of what happens when you can do both, when you both declare and demonstrate. Mm-hmm. Hearing those examples, reading those testimonies is important. Um, even when you talk about diaspora, a lot of times I didn't grow up thinking that diaspora was anywhere biblically. Mm. I thought we were just out of it, missing out. But then when you go back, oh snap, Moses was diaspora. He spent 40 years in this country. And then went back to his country. It's all in there. It's and I, oh, oh, snap. Nehemiah was a diaspora, diaspora in Persia. Went back to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls of his city. Oh, snap. Paul was diaspora. I mean, I, so when you, and that's the missing out. When, when you hear and, and when you go back and you read the testimonies and you hear again, you read those stories and you read it afresh. And that's the thing. We, we tend to read with the same lens that we heard it, that was taught. But when you read afresh and you read it new, then you begin to see the whole Bible is a justice thing. Absolutely. This, this is not Absolutely. a new progressive, Absolutely. you know, Absolutely. thing. This is, bibli- this is biblical. This is From Genesis to Revelation, it's, the Bible says that the kingdom of God is founded on justice and righteousness. That's right. I mean, this is all over. And so when I think the missing out piece that we've done is, let's hear from our diaspora brothers and sisters all over the world. Let's hear from them in Africa. Let's hear from them in Asia. Let's hear from them in the Middle East. Let's hear from them everywhere. everywhere. And then let's hear from the black church here. What does the black church here have to submit? Because it has experience here as well to lot. share with the rest of the world. And so it's the sharing and the convening, I think, is where we can resolve the problem yeah, of missing and out. I, and I would say that, and, that's, and, and, and what I hear is that we need to recover collectivism, which is a very, and that's a very central, you know, to our roots as Africans, you know, uh, and I'm talking about every black person in this room, Africans. Um, um, and so when we, when I, th- when I think about the gaps and what, what we're missing, I wrote about this in uh, our book, The Truth Table, Black Women's Musings on Life, Love, and Liberation, in the second chapter that I wrote, because I wrote four, there's three, there's three of us, so we wrote four chapters, 
behind the colorism chapter, which I'm going to come back to, um, um, is decolonized discipleship. And so my work as a public theologian is to create frameworks and put forth frameworks so that we can be able to begin to decolonize, <laughs> you know, the faith that we that was handed down to us you know, by, um, uh, by, by oppressors. And so that we can understand like, wait a minute, what's really true about this gospel? Oh, it's an Eastern religion. Oh, 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 the apostles are writing to, to their people in the diaspora. Like as you just lifted up, like, yeah. Oh, Jesus was a brown skinned Jewish Palestinian man. Not was, is right now. Cause he didn't raise as a ghost. You know, how do we get back, you know, to, so we're recovering fundamentals of the faith that have been lost because we've, re- we've received, um, you know, a, a counterfeit, you know, um, um, gospel that just can't sustain us. It, it ain't got no demonstrative power, demonstrative power, and it ain't got no declarative power, right? But then if we, if we think about learning from one another and what does that look like? What does it mean to get back to the basics? you know, of doing um, the work of Christian education within the church, you know, that meets Christian education that meets political education. And what I mean by political education in this instance, I'm talking about what does it mean to have a sense in which we come to the text, (laughs) not trying to negate our social location, not trying to negate our blackness, but bringing all of ourselves to the text because the Holy Spirit worked through the apostles from their social location because they were writing to people with current issues. So it matters (laughs) that we are embodied beings, that it matters, our culture matters, and informs our interpretive lens of the text. And that's not a bad thing. But how do we bring all of that to bear when we're coming into community to interpret the text and to learn from one another? So when I talk about political education is what does it mean for black immigrants to learn from African Americans who know racism in this country and we got, because black immigrants have got to get a deeper and more broad racial consciousness. You just got to learn what time it is. Seriously, you got to learn, you got to learn fast, okay? Or else you, you will be used as a wedge, you know, and eventually you will be used up. Okay, and chewed up and spit out because that's what white supremacy does. And so it might be all hunky-dory right now, but trust and believe you will get swallowed up by the system. It ain't, it ain't nothing. You saw what happened to Ralph Yarl. You have, saw what happened to Alfred Alongo. You ha- saw what happened to Amadou Diallo. We're not exempt. So please, let's disabuse ourselves of immigrant exceptionalism. It does not exist, and we need to stop it right now. And I'm going to get off of that hobby horse and go back to the fact that we need we need political we need christian education that marries political education within our black churches because the diaspora is in the black church (laughs) i don't really know of a black church that's like it is distinctly all african-american i don't know i don't know of one i'm not saying that they don't exist i'm just not aware of them You, you know and so i think what does that mean to begin to incorporate that type of education into those spaces. And then we're sitting at the table with one another and we're learning from one another. Right. You know, so that to me is missing. And I I just think we got to get back to the basics and it's a discipleship issue. That's decolonized discipleship there. And then you can bring in a lot of the other issues that we have like colorism, you know, which we don't ever talk about in the church, but y'all could just get the book and read that chapter. In fact, I won't stop talking about colorism. That's good. (laughs) My sister pointed out something I think is really, really important. Um, This immigrant exceptionalism, um, which is pervasive. Um, But also what I want to appeal to the black church is that there is privilege. Mm. 
in the black church. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And the black diaspora groups do look to the black church. Whether they recognize it or not, there's a leadership role that the black church can play. Mm. And I, I, I compare it to Esther, who was also a diaspora, diaspora. She living was. in Persia. She's yeah. not from Persia. Yeah. She's diaspora. Right? She's diaspora. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And she had privilege when she married, when she, when she was chosen to be taken on by the king. And her cousin understood her privilege. And he told her, yo, pick up your privilege and save our people. It's not a bad thing to have privilege. What you do with the privilege is what's important. Pick up your privilege, because you have the king's ear, and save our people. And she did. She understood her privilege, and she used that privilege to save her people from a genocide. The black church in America does have a privilege that it's been here a long time. It has understood how racism is intertwined into the fabric of this country. It has seen expressions of liberation through civil rights movements and other things. I mean, the black church has seen so much and gone through so much that there's so much learning that immigrant communities can get from it. And so there needs to be this highway, this byway of learning between our peoples. It's not just one direction. We need to have this interaction, this exchange of learning and knowledge. And I think the black church, since you are the ones receiving our people, and when we come here, you look like us. There is a, a privilege cousins. that you play, and we will look to you for that support. That's right. Can I say something? I just want to, uh, I think that's great. Um, about the privilege, I just want to problematize it a little bit, just add a little addendum there. I would say it's contested privilege. You know, if you think about Esther, you're talking about being in, in a harem um, and being selected and having to go to the king and she could have died. So let's talk about that. But also, and if you want to use her as a stand-in, you know, as a symbol for African-Americans, it's contested privilege, right? Because they came by force. So I just wanted to, to put that little addendum in there. But yeah, but, but everything you said is right. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, I just sensed, as you all were talking, just so much... Uh, Uh, openness in the room, specifically for ministry leaders, black ministry leaders in here, to bring their full selves back to the text. And as you were saying that, I just sensed that there were black ministry leaders, black pastors, uh, black organizational leaders, and you haven't done that yet. Um, And so I just want to affirm and amplify what you said and say, let's do that. Let's reapproach the text, bringing our full selves, bringing who God created us to be. And um, thank you all so much. Akimini, Mark, this was absolutely phenomenal. Thank you. Please meet them, support them. Um, Please buy the Truth's Table book. Please subscribe to the Truth's Table podcast. Um, Please follow Mark and everything that he is doing with Tear Fund USA. Um, And we honor you all. Thank you so much uh, for opening our eyes and really encouraging our hearts. So can we honor them once again? Well, I want to thank you for taking a seat at the table with us this week. Let's keep the conversation going. Tweet us your thoughts about Truth Table Classroom, Pan-Africanism, and the African diaspora using the hashtag Truth Table. Black women, did y'all know that we have a Facebook discipleship group just for Black women? 
Well, now you do. Make sure you follow Truth Table on Facebook and join our Facebook group today. Answer all of the entry questions and agree to the group rules so you can be admitted. Invite your homegirls too. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Truth Table or email us your thoughts at asktruthstable at gmail.com. Don't forget to rate and review the show on iTunes and subscribe on your favorite podcast player. Truth Table has a Patreon account so y'all can send your love offerings to patreon.com slash truthstable. Or you can bless us at our PayPal, which is paypal.me slash truthstable. Truthstable's audio producer is Joshua Heath. Our video producer is Daryl Bradford. And Truthstable's executive producers and hosts are Akemini Uwan and Christina Edmondson. We'll see you soon on the next Truth Table. Bye, y'all. <laughs>